DSM-5, Diagnosis of Substance Use Disorders, What Has Changed? So that's our topic for today. Uh, once again, my name is Andrew Kurtz. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. My pronouns are he, him, and his. I'm a clinical specialist with UCLA Integrated Substance Abuse Programs. Okay, we'll go ahead and close that poll. Uh, most of you are mental health therapists. That makes sense. Again, if you're doing a lot of this diagnosis, um, this is the right training to attend. Do you have substance use disorder counselors? This is going to be part of your role in, in thinking about uh, how to conceptualize a case. What are you focused on when somebody first comes into treatment? That diagnostic consideration will be really important, even if you yourself aren't doing the diagnosis. Uh, case managers, same idea. You're going to be uh, noticing some of the initial uh, impairments in functioning that somebody brings into treatment. It, it may help to conceptualize not necessarily how do I diagnose, but how do I orient myself to certain symptoms that may be present? How do I better conceptualize intoxication versus withdrawal versus use disorders? And hopefully by the end of today, you'll have some additional strategies for doing that. Supervisors and administrators, as I always say, you all are critical to make sure that those processes happen. And so it's, it's always good to be familiar with uh, the diagnoses that we're talking about here. Good. So thank you very much for answering that poll. Again, it helps me to know who's in the session and how we can structure our conversations. I'm actually really excited to hear about how you conceptualize uh, some of the different cases that come up as we're moving forward in the training, uh, given your role, given your different expertise. Overall, our, our learning objectives for today are, are to clarify, first and foremost, some of the differences between the DSM-4TR and the DSM-5. What are some of those changes beyond the switch from Roman numerals to Arabic numerals? Uh, what are the kind of content-oriented changes and how does that relate to our work? Uh, how does that relate to how we interact with clients? I'm a big advocate of assessment as a really critical intervention for engagement in treatment. I think there's the importance of recognizing assessment as a workflow process that you can't really do much until you complete your assessment. So make sure that you get your documentation done, but there's clinical utility to noting what's going on with someone when they first come into treatment. There's engagement opportunities to think about how you do assessment and how you bring this information into a session. Um, we're not going to go over to any huge degree or, or all that specifically engagement strategies, but where it's relevant, I'll talk about the way that we can weave together really kind of structured diagnostic criteria with that more humanistic engagement piece that we, we want to try to strike a balance with uh, in, in those initial sessions that we have with people. We're going to look at some of the, the new disorders, some of the changes in the DSM-5 compared to the DSM-4-TR. Uh, we'll talk about some substance-related and addictive disorders that are different in the DSM-5 than the DSM-4-TR. And then uh, if we have the opportunity to, I'll get into a little bit around PTSD just because of uh, the recognition of the co-occurrence of PTSD among a lot of your clients who may be coming in with substance use issues. Uh, we'll also describe some of the other diagnostic criteria in the DSM-4-TR, uh, or the change from the DSM-4-TR to the DSM-5. But ultimately, this training is focused on updating our conceptualization of substance use disorders within the DSM-5 and some of the substantial changes that have happened uh, 
um, as a result of, of this new publication. I say new, even though we've, we've had this particular uh, iteration for almost a decade at this point. We'll have chances to practice as we go forward. We'll have chances to um, talk about some different cases. We'll certainly wrap up with looking at uh, identifying preliminary diagnoses based on certain vignettes and case vignettes that we have towards the end of the training. But I'll, I'll give some of those examples as we move forward in the training and we'll have a chance to talk with each other as we go through this. You certainly have more slides in your slide packet than I'm going to go over in the next few hours that we have together. Um, but if there's something that I skip over, it's likely because we cover it uh, at least conceptually in, in one or more other slides. Uh, but if there's some piece of specific information that you want to ask about, feel free to do that. I'm happy to, to respond to those questions. All right, let's get into what we're going to be talking about. Uh, brief overview of the history of the DSM. I'm not going to, to lecture you about the history of the DSM, but I do want to note that in 1952, the first version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders was published by the American Psychiatric Association. Since then, there have been multiple versions of the DSM. Again, more recently, we've seen the DSM-4TR and the DSM-5. Uh, there have been a lot of changes since 1952 to this manual. For one thing, uh, I don't think you could bind the DSM in that way any longer. It's significantly larger. Uh, it is a bit of a tome, but it is incredibly comprehensive. Um, the DSM has changed. It's evolved. The way in which uh, mental disorders have been classified, has changed. You're deferring now more towards the ICD-10 code. Uh, that is the evolution of the way in which we identify mental disorders. Um, this is ever-changing. There are updates to the DSM. There are shifts in the way that we conceptualize certain aspects of impairments and functioning. Uh, if you go back historically and you look at some of the diagnoses that were included as recently as uh, two or three versions ago, it, it may shock you. Some of the, the uh, aspects of functioning that were identified as mental disorders but again, what we're looking at is almost a historical record of the way in which we conceptualize mental disorders, not just as something that's identified organically or developing organically, but looking at impairments and functioning within a number of different contexts. From the standpoint of these diagnostic criteria, from the standpoint of the, the time in which somebody is experiencing those impairments, uh, the way in which we consider what a mental disorder actually is. We'll talk about all of that, but I, I want to, to acknowledge that while this is kind of our, our, this is our Bible in terms of how we identify, diagnose, and formulate treatment plans for individuals coming into mental health treatment, this book is not without criticism. Um, if you look at any of the, the discussions or the literature around some of the limitations of the DSM-5, recognize that this is probably one of the best ways to conceptualize an individual's functioning in a standardized way across different disciplines, across different areas uh, or geographic regions, but it, it's not necessarily the be-all, end-all. Right? This doesn't necessarily encompass every single aspect of somebody's functioning. It doesn't encompass every single conceptualization of functioning that 
you may see in treatment. There are certain considerations such as cultural considerations that may shift some of the diagnostic considerations that may shift some of the way that we view an individual's functioning or try to contextualize that um, consistent with trying to diagnose a, a mental disorder. So it will make that caveat again. This is uh, a, an excellent resource to standardize our practices. It's relevant for billing purposes, uh, but it is not without certain criticisms. Uh, and I think understanding those criticisms certainly from a, a clinical standpoint, allows a provider to incorporate other aspects of questioning that engage the individual beyond just trying to figure out what's wrong with them, so to speak, or just beyond trying to put a label on who they are. Uh, again, a great starting point here. This is something that we need for our, our best practice purposes. Um, but we can also think about how we expand upon this in our questioning and in our assessment to be even more effective. This is the current version. I would recommend uh, if you are doing any sort of diagnosis to have a copy of this available. Um, a physical copy I, I find is, is much better than having an electronic version. I know that there are electronic versions out there, uh, but I, I like having the tangible book. I like being able to move through the, the pages and label them. Um, it just, it helps me to organize and orient myself as I'm doing diagnoses. Uh, so I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of having the actual book and being able to write notes in it and being able to, to separate it out because it is uh, potentially a confusing book to try to navigate if you're not familiar with the way the sections are laid out. Which leads me to the conversation about the structure of the DSM-5. The DSM-5 has a very logical structure in which it's laid out. Uh, it starts with the DSM-5 classification and the preface, changes related to the DSM-5 from the DSM-4-TR, and then you have multiple sections that serve different purposes. Section one goes over DSM-5 basics. How do you uh, read through the DSM-5? How is it organized? What are you focused on as you're reading through it? Section two are the essential elements such as diagnostic criteria and codes. And that's really where you're going to look for those diagnostic elements in a, a determining a particular diagnosis for a client. It's going to give you some other information about prevalence rates. It's going to give you some developmental information going to give you some differential diagnosis information as well. So there's a lot of, again, context that's provided to each of these diagnoses in that particular section. Uh, this, this is probably going to sound a little bit nerdier than I intended to, but I actually really like section three of the DSM-5. Uh, that definitely sounded way nerdier than I intended. Uh, not like I read it at my leisure, but there are some really interesting components. I'm suddenly feeling like I should bail out of this entire conversation. Uh, there are some really interesting components to section three that talk about emerging, emerging measures and models that are on the forefront of what we should consider in terms of uh, diagnostic criteria going forward. Um, things like uh, disorders focused on, on repeated suicide attempts, uh, things like internet gaming addiction, as we tend to think about it. Uh, while those are diagnoses that haven't quite been codified in that section two, the essential elements and diagnostic codes, there's more and more research that's pointing in directions that, that help to shape our existing diagnostic criteria, but also focus on, again, some of these emerging models 
uh, for impairment. Uh, as a provider, it's nice to be informed of, of that type of research and where we see that connecting with what we're noticing in treatment. If you work with adolescents, even if you work with adults, you've noticed the way in which something like internet gaming uh, use issues can come up. Uh, it's not, again, codified in the diagnostic codes at this point in time, but it's something to keep your eye on. And, and it, it would be nice to, to hear kind of that validation of a standardized code matching with what our anecdotal experiences are in treatment. You then have the appendix and the index at the end, uh, which help you to organize or look up additional codes uh, and to kind of cross-reference based on alphabetical order or category. In the appendix, you have a couple different sections that are useful. Um, starting on page 809, you have a highlight of the changes from the DSM-4 to the DSM-5, which we will go over. We will cover that in this training. Uh, you then have a glossary of cultural concepts of distress. A again, not the be-all, end-all. There may be additional considerations that you would think about as you're meeting with somebody individually. But this aims to broaden what is kind of traditionally and historically a very westernized view of mental health. Uh, adding in those other cultural concepts, other, those other cultural components, Again, it helps to potentially broaden our ability to engage and assess an individual, um, not necessarily trying to slot them into just a broad category, but looking specifically at uh, aspects of their individual functioning. You also have the alphabetical listing of DSM-5 diagnoses and codes, uh, both the ICD-9 and the ICD-10 codes, and then the numerical listing. So you have it either by alphabetical order or by numerical order. If we were to do, uh, when I've done in-person assessment trainings in the past, we spend a little bit more time on this section uh, in which we'll actually ask people to bring a DSM-5, we'll ask them to label the different sections, we'll go through and we'll label the different categories uh, of diagnoses as we go forward. We're not gonna do that in this session, one, because we don't really have the time to do that, and two, there was no requirement for you to have a DSM-5. If you are playing along at home and you happen to have a DSM-5 and you want to label it as we're going forward uh, and you get stuck or you get uh, confused as to where we're at in the DSM-5, just let me know and I'm happy to try to clarify that. What do we, we mean when we say a mental disorder? Most of you are probably familiar with this. Uh, you're familiar with the term. You're familiar with what it means. You're familiar with what we're trying to accomplish by identifying a diagnosis with the DSM-5. But I, I wanna set the stage a little bit because this relates to one of the changes that we know from the DSM-4 to the DSM-5, uh, specifically related to substance use issues. Uh, and so I wanna set the stage here, just making sure that we're all on the same page in terms of how we conceptualize what a, a mental disorder is. When we think about a mental disorder, we're looking at a syndrome that is typically characterized by certain changes in an individual's functioning, certain disturbances in an individual's functioning, uh, certain functional impairments that are occurring in different areas of the person's life. And so I think about this broadly, that I'm looking at a cluster of symptoms uh, that I might try to identify at the beginning of treatment but I always have to connect it to some associated 
distress. So the significant disturbances might be uh, related to cognitive disturbances, emotion regulation, or certain behavioral aspects, which we'll clarify further as we move into the training. Those disturbances, disturbances reflect certain dysfunction in processes of psychological functioning, biological functioning, or developmental functioning. And what I always come back to whenever I am um, thinking about constructing an assessment, when I'm thinking about documenting what's happening in a session, I always want to not just note the cluster of symptoms, but identify that those cluster of symptoms are causing clinically significant impairment in functioning. That's really the key, that you, you want to distinguish a continuum or a spectrum of functioning. And just because somebody is acting in a way that doesn't seem to fit with the norm, whatever that might be, I'm speaking really broadly here, doesn't necessarily mean that that individual has a mental health disorder. What we're really specifically looking at is, does that cluster of symptoms, of behaviors, uh, does it lead to clinically significant impairment in functioning? And that might be related to social functioning. It might be related to familial functioning. It might be related to occupational or educational functioning or academic functioning uh, or other important activities that the person may have to engage in in their daily life. That's what makes your documentation more robust. That's what makes your justification more robust as you're thinking about initiating treatment. What is the clinically significant impairment in functioning that is being caused by this cluster of symptoms? A mental disorder is not, again, somebody being a little bit different. And, and I, I think this, this is intuitively, we all know this, uh, you're probably sitting there saying, well, yeah, I know that this is the definition of a mental disorder, but I, I cannot tell you how often it comes up in things like case consultation uh, or even consultation with providers or supervision where a provider will use a mental disorder as an opportunity to blame a client, as an opportunity to, to unburden themselves from the challenges of a particular case. Uh, you've probably experienced this. You've probably heard this before. I, I can think of at least a handful of opportunities or experiences of this where providers have said things like, oh, well, mom is just bipolar. Mom is just borderline. Uh, this client's just borderline. So like that's an explanation for how we should dismiss certain interactions that are difficult or problematic. Um, it's fine if that's part of the clinical conceptualization, but I'm always really hesitant. I, it, it makes my skin crawl a little bit when, uh, when clinicians, when providers use a diagnosis or use a label as an opportunity to establish a hierarchy of us being different than them because they're functioning in this way. I think a lot of that perpetuates existing stigma in mental health, and we wanna make sure that we're moving away from that, especially from a diagnostic standpoint. As I said, there are enough criticisms of the DSM-5 as it stands. We don't need to perpetuate additional stigma uh, with our use of some of these labels that already exist. Um, 
A mental disorder is not an expected or culturally appropriate response to a stressor or loss, such as the death of a loved one. Again, things like uh, bereavement, you want to try to separate that out, but there are certain cultural practices in which uh, bereavement or, or grief would go beyond what we conceptualize within the DSM-5. Uh, and we have to take that into consideration and not potentially identify it as, as uh, pathological or, or pathologizing uh, from our standpoint, but rather take it within the context of the individual's functioning, take it within the context of their culture uh, and figure out um, what type of resilience the person may be deriving from this. Uh, even if we identify that there may be uh, some, some maladaptations to their functioning. Socially de deviant behavior, again, this is what I mentioned in terms of outside of the norm. Things that we would consider as uh, different than what we would expect doesn't necessarily mean that it's a mental disorder. Uh, this is a good time to think about our own bias in treatment and how we can check some of our judgments and defer away from judgment more specifically to uh, clinically relevant assessment and identification of impairment in functioning. Um, conflict between an individual and society, unless the conflict results primarily from a dysfunction as described above. So we're, we're looking really at, again, that this has to incorporate some aspect of significant distress, some aspect of, of clinically significant impairment in functioning. The multi-axial diagnostic system has changed as well, um, and so you may be familiar with the five axes of the DSM-4-TR. Uh, axis one was clinical disorders, so that is where your the majority of your diagnostic codes would go. That would be an indicator of, of potentially what you were focusing on in treatment, except for axis two. Axis two was personality disorders and mental retardation. Uh, we'll talk about how some of the terminology has been updated. Uh, mental retardation is no longer currently used. Uh, that's in a broad category of shifts related to neurocognitive impairments in functioning. We'll come back to that. Axis three is general medical conditions. Axis four would be psychosocial and environmental problems. Here you would include those V codes that are either sub-threshold or um, the environmental factors that are not specifically embedded in a clinical disorder or encompassed in a clinical diagnosis. And then axis five would be your GAF score, your global assessment of functioning. DSM-5 has upended this completely. Uh, axes one, two, and three have been collapsed and are recorded all together as clinical diagnoses. So rather than identifying each of those separately, you essentially have a narrative for any of the clinical diagnoses that might be of focus in treatment. As I mentioned, mental retardation is now intellectual disability, and it's been shifted uh, or it's included in the neurodevelopmental disorders chapter. Axis four is psychosocial factors uh, recorded as Z codes. So you would, you would consider that similar to the V codes that are recorded as Z codes. Uh, it doesn't anymore have its own specific axis because we've done away with the five axis system, uh, but you are distinguishing those psychosocial factors, uh, which are noted on page 715 of the DSM-5. No more global assessment of functioning. That has been gotten rid of. We'll, we'll talk about why. Instead, there is a structured assessment schedule 
the World Health Organization Disability Assessment Schedule. But that is in Section 3 for further study. So that is a structured uh, quantitative assessment similar to the global assessment of functioning, but um, a little bit more comprehensive and uh, slightly different focus, which we'll, we'll get to in a second. As I mentioned, the, the gap has been largely uh, dropped as a result of the, the difficulties of clarity with the GAF score. Um, if you're familiar with the GAF score, you, you essentially assign a number from zero to 100 based on the individual's functioning. It represented, uh, again, that quantitative number of your judgment as a clinician of the person, the totality of the person's overall functioning. Um, <clears throat> on a continuum of mental health on the high end versus illness on the low end, so a score of 100 would indicate a uh, high level of mental well-being, a score of zero would indicate a, a high level of uh, dysfunction in terms of in, individuals' uh, daily, daily life functioning. Uh, this was dropped, if anybody has done a GAF score, if you've been around long enough, I guess this would be within the last eight to 10 years, if you've been around long enough to do GAF scores, you know that this is not a, a, a really all that reliable and valid practice. Um, it is highly subjective. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons that it was dropped. It, it didn't have a ton of conceptual clarity and you would get variability provider to provider as a result of the way that this scale was identified. So remember that reliability is just uh, how consistent uh, of a measuring tool is this, and, and then uh, meaning if I were to rate a particular client and then Shannon were to rate the same client, just to call you out, Shannon, uh, for example, we may come up with very different scores, uh, and so that would indicate low reliability. Validity is how well the, the tool measures what it's supposed to be measuring. Is this an accurate representation if we have this conceptualization of a continuum of, of illness on one end and mental health on the other, is that number score really encapsulating what we're, we're trying to get at? And again, what, what they've found in updating the DSM to the, to the fifth version uh, is that there really wasn't a lot of reliability and validity that this score provided. The WHO disability schedule, um, I don't know if anybody is using this currently. I, I don't usually encounter too many providers that are using the WHO disability assessment schedule, but it is included in, in Section 3 of the DSM-5. Uh, it is significantly more structured than the GAF score. As I said, the GAF score was, okay, I did my assessment. I'm going to take a look at this information. Let's see what I came up with. All right, this seems to be about a 75, uh, and I can justify that based on the scale. The WHO Disability Assessment actually has 36 items of a self-administered measure that are designed to report functioning across six different domains in the past 30 days. The drawback of this, obviously, is the additional time that might uh, be required in order to complete this with a client. Clients already have enough paperwork to complete. You all already have enough paperwork to complete. Uh, this, this may add additional information that, that uh, potentially you may not have time for that may be potentially complicating. So in the past 30 days, uh, how has the individual individual's functioning been according to understanding and communicating, uh, mobility, self-care, getting along with people, 
like life activities and participation in society. Uh, so this is going to be in section three. Uh, let me see if I can find the exact page number for you. Uh, it is going to be noted on page seven. 734, there's a little bit of a disclaimer, and then 745 to 748 is going to be your, your, um, your measure, your 36-item measure. Uh, so it's mentioned on a few different pages. 734 is where it starts. Page 745 to 748 is the World Health uh, Disability Assessment Schedule. Uh, while I like having the hard copy of the DSM, uh, having a PDF version allows me to search for these kinds of questions and pull up the page numbers on a whim. And so that kind of organization, if you thought I was like some sort of DSM wizard, no, uh, I searched for it on a PDF and that's how it came up. It does help with organization though. Again, if you don't want to flip through a bunch of pages, having an electronic version of the DSM can be beneficial. Um, find what works for you, find what helps you to complete your work in the most efficient way possible. Uh, but there, you know, we have that technology that's available for a reason. We want to look at the difference between categorical versus dimensional diagnosis. We often think about the way in which the DSM is broken into categories, that there are certain categories of mood disorders that you would you would go to that section and those all those are, are placed in the same category. Um, there's been a slight shift between the DSM and the five and the DSM four in the way that we think about mental health and mental illness at large. There is a significantly greater shift away from categorical or fixed episodic experiences of mental illness and more of a recognition of the fact that functioning exists along a continuum, that impairments in functioning exist on a continuum of severe to less severe to potentially non-problematic or even socially acceptable if we're thinking about that within the context of, of socio-cultural factors. And so the DSM has actually shifted in more of a dimensional approach. Um, you recognize this in things like developmental disorders, uh, things like autism spectrum disorders in which uh, Asperger's has been removed, it's been incorporated into the recognition of uh, autism as a developmental delay or a developmental disorder along a continuum that that an individual may exist on this continuum with some of the functional impairments, but there also might be some aspect of impair of, of functioning that isn't impacted in the same way as as potentially another client. So uh, I, I like this shift in in into a dimensional approach because I think it really does put us in a place where we are better positioned to destigmatize mental health further, uh, which is not pill battle, it's ongoing. But if there's a recognition that, that what you have when you're diagnosing mental, mental illness is not that somebody is contained in a bubble of disorder on their own, but rather they're simply on a different end of the spectrum than somebody else, uh, I think that really assists in in destigmatizing and even potentially to, to some extent demystifying what we're doing when we're diagnosing mental health uh, from the standpoint of, of the general public. 
Uh, we look at internalizing versus externalizing factors. So what is happening internally for the individual? Is there that experience of, of mood symptoms, things like anxiety, depression, or somatic expression uh, of, of certain symptoms? And then the externalizing piece, uh, that would be that what we would traditionally call acting out disruptive conduct, impulsivity, or even substance use issues. You all know this when you work with individuals with substance use issues, it's never just the externalizing behavior. There's a, there's a whole bunch that's happening internally for the individual, sometimes related to co-occurring mood disorders that we wanna be cognizant of. So uh, think about that dimensional approach, but also think within that, what are the internal versus external factors of an individual's functioning? Um, early on in treatment, especially I think early on in substance use treatment, it, it may be indicated to focus on more of the externalizing behaviors. So again, I think about this, this process of not just deferring to the diagnosis, but really conceptualizing the course of treatment. I, I mentioned that early on in substance use treatment in particular, I'm focusing a lot more on the externalizing behaviors. I'm focusing a lot more on kind of those overt behaviors. Um, why is that the case, particularly with substance use issues? Uh, even if there is co-occurring uh, co mood issues, I'm still often deferring more towards focusing on externalizing symptoms. Why is that the case? Why would that be beneficial for somebody with substance use issues? I agree that, that there's that idea that you, you kind of have a better indicator of what's going on. They're the most apparent, they're the most readily noticeable. Whereas, as Michelle was mentioning, that internalizing piece, there may be a lot to unpack there. There may be there may be some differential diagnostic considerations that I might have to think about. And so that might be a little bit more complicated or a little bit more complex. Good. Sylvia, greater danger to self or others. Good. So I, I might look at uh, risk issues, right? Okay, good. Uh, they present the behavioral disturbance, which affect the life functioning. Good. Uh, I think it comes back to that idea that it's probably going to be, be the most overt thing that shows up in the room. Uh, and the most overt thing that shows up in the room is probably going to be an indicator of the, the greatest level of impairment and functioning that the person is experiencing. Uh, it tells a story about how they're presenting. Good. Uh, even if we don't get kind of those, those internal cues, if somebody can't describe that, looking externally about how this is impacting their relationships, impacting their functioning, is a great way to start that story. I also think about, and if you attended the, the co-occurring disorders training last week, you'll, you'll remember this. I think about what's happening when somebody comes into treatment early on from a behavioral standpoint, from a mental health standpoint, but also from a, a neurochemical standpoint that really starting with internalizing symptoms and asking that person to take stock of what's going on internally isn't going to be as productive as I might like it to be. When somebody is using substances for a period of time and you have that inhibition of prefrontal cortex functioning, that insight and awareness about internal states 
isn't going to be as prominent as we would like. And so I can start, my hook is with the thing that is in the room. My hook is the thing that is apparent and I can start to work with that as I get this person accustomed to treatment, as I get this person in a mode where we're starting to enhance that prefrontal cortex functioning, as they become more comfortable with me, as we build that engagement and rapport so that they do disclose a little bit more about their, their internal state. So there's a couple different considerations here. I think most obviously you all got it exactly right. It's going to be the thing that's most urgent potentially. At the very least, it's the most prominent, it's the most observable, uh, the thing that's in the room. But I also have a consideration from kind of a, a, a developmental perspective, and I'm talking about the progression of treatment, that early on, questioning and, and assessment of, of internal states may not yield the kind of insights that I would want simply because the individual's neurocognitive functioning is not in a place to be able to do that. An example of this would be uh, schizophrenia replacement of subtypes with dimensional assessment of symptoms. So you don't have the same type of, of classical subtypes that you had in the DSM-4 with schizophrenia, there is now a dimensional assessment in which you're assigning a similar rating, similar to the WHO disability assessment schedule. You can come up with a, a more structured identification of uh, the impairment in functioning and type of functioning across a continuum. Uh, my favorite NOS, <laughs> which is no longer used, as, as a, a clinician who um, was doing a lot of assessments and having to get those assessments done in a timely manner, I included a lot of NOSs in what I would do on my, uh, on my assessment. Um, that is, again, there's, there's a component of that that is potentially adaptive. There's a piece of that that uh, sometimes doesn't give you the entire story, but uh, not otherwise specified designations have been split into other specified disorder versus unspecified disorder. So other specified disorder is an indicator of the clinician providing specific reasons why a symptom presentation doesn't meet the full criteria for a particular diagnosis. So you have an indicator of, of where you want that uh, what diagnosis you see as being relevant to this individual's functioning, but it doesn't quite meet that criteria for a very specific reason. Unspecified disorder is essentially the clinician uh, electing to not specify a full reason for why the criteria is not met. Uh, this is based on the clinician's decision, and you can see the way in which it allows a maximum of diagnostic flexibility. So, uh, really quick poll to all of you, which we're not going to do as a formal poll. If I, as a, <clears throat> as a clinician, am meeting with somebody to complete an assessment, and I, I'm gathering information about their functioning, I'm listening to their story, uh, and what I would typically use as a, a diagnostic code would be an NOS, um, something like uh, mood disorder uh, NOS, or depressive disorder NOS. Which would I use here? Would I use other specified disorder or would I use unspecified disorder? If I'm just going through my assessment and then I'm assigning this case to a clinician to do further uh, in-depth evaluation, would I be more likely to use other specified disorder or unspecified disorder? Uh, 
I think kind of unanimously it's unspecified. And that is correct. I would want to use unspecified because it gives me the highest degree of flexibility as we move forward and placing this person in treatment and, and determining what's actually going on. So other specified would be, for example, an individual who comes in and I have a sense of uh, a specific depressive diagnosis. However, the symptoms have been lasting for four weeks, but not the five that are required for the diagnostic criteria. So this would be other specified depressive disorder, depressive episode with insufficient symptoms. Now, an unspecified disorder would be an individual who shows up for treatment and presents with two or three depressive symptoms lasting less than two weeks. I don't know if this is a factor of um, the individual not meeting the full criteria, uh, or the, the length of time. And so this would be an unspecified depressive disorder. Again, uh, from a, an assessment and intake standpoint, this gets the person potentially into treatment, it gets them services, uh, but you, you have the highest degree of flexibility to continue to reassess and narrow down that particular diagnosis. You'll also hear unspecified used in triage centers. Uh, so if you're thinking about something like an emergency center, uh, or kind of that brief interaction where the person's case has to be opened in order for them to be seen, you may see unspecified disorders show up in that way as well. All right, when you're recording multiple different diagnoses, you want to consider that uh, there's going to be a principal diagnosis that's always listed first. Uh, similar to how we would do this with the AXIS system, uh, we are still going to note a bit of a hierarchy in terms of the diagnoses. This is relevant for uh, charting to give a sense of what we're incorporating to the treatment plan, but it's also useful for billing purposes uh, because the principal diagnosis should relate to the type of treatment that's being provided, which should relate to your scope of practice and your role. So it's not always easy to determine the principal diagnosis. There's always this chicken and egg scenario that we, we tend to encounter. Uh, what came first? Was it depression or was it methamphetamine use? Uh, some combination of the two, and I don't necessarily know which is which. In that case, if I'm still trying to determine which came first and I don't really know, I'm simply deferring to what uh, the primary focus of attention is going to be in treatment. Uh, and so think about what your role is. Think about uh, what your discipline is. If you're a mental health clinician versus a substance use disorder counselor, you can incorporate both of those diagnoses, but depending on the type of treatment that's going to be provided, I want to list uh, what I'm going to be focusing on initially. The principal diagnosis or reason for the visit, if it's a mental disorder due to a medical condition, uh, the medical condition is always listed first. And so again, we kind of talk about your focus in treatment, except for those scenarios where it's due to a medical condition. In that scenario, you're gonna list the medical condition first. Uh, major depression due to having HIV AIDS for many years or major neurocognitive disorder due to Alzheimer's, HIV, or, or Alzheimer's is listed first in that scenario. Uh, again, in that situation, I think you're probably deferring to other medical records, coordinating with a physician to make sure that that diagnosis is up to date, and then incorporating that as part of your uh, treatment planning purposes. Real quick note about ICD-10 codes. Um, they have between three and seven characters. Uh, the codes for psychiatric disorders will always begin with S, and there are a lot of them. 
Uh, and so this is useful in the index section or the appendix section of the DSM-5 to look at the codes. Uh, if you're searching for the codes rather than the name, you can cross-reference it that way. Um, codes with three characters represent the heading of a category of codes. Uh, for example, F31 would represent bipolar disorders. The psychiatric codes are then subdivided using the fourth, fifth, and sixth characters. The seventh character is used, but rarely. It's typically only for certain medical conditions. All of your all of your DSM-5 codes um, will have the the F and then the broad category, but not every single one will have a six-digit code. Most of them are four or five digits, depending on the category and then the specifier. A lot of the substance-related codes do have six digits, um, but there's standardization across those. And what they typically indicate is the level of severity and functioning combined with the presence or lack thereof of psychotic symptoms. Uh, for example, it, you can read through this. You see the code for major depression, recurrent with moderate severity, um, illness, anxiety disorder, F4521. I'm trying to remember, I think the, the DSM-4 code was, was a 296.33 for major depression. Um, I used to know these like in my sleep, uh, but uh, some of it comes back to me from time to time. Uh, the illness, anxiety disorder would be F4521, amphetamine type substance use disorder with moderate severity would be F15.20. And then again, you see that modifier for the level of severity and then uh, methamphetamine or amphetamine induced psychosis has the five digit code plus the F identifier as a result of the inclusion of psychotic symptoms. There continue to be updates for billing purposes as well as refinement of the DSM-5. So uh, make sure that you're staying up to date on any of the changes in the ICD-10 coding system uh, and the crosswalk with the DSM-5. This isn't a specific uh, coding training, so we're not gonna go through every single code, um, but oftentimes when there are updates published to this coding system, uh, EHRs, EMRs, and billing systems will typically be updated on the back end with those new codes automatically. Um, so you usually don't have to worry about that, but it is worthwhile to stay up to date on what those changes are. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about recording diagnoses and, and the steps for noting those codes, but if you have any questions about this coding system, uh, let me know. We can talk about that a little bit more specifically. Um, the way in which I would tend to record a diagnosis would be to um, locate the disorder that meets your criteria. So you're, you're going through the criteria, you're looking at the symptoms, uh, and then you want to identify the name of that disorder. For example, here we'll talk about PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. You add in any subtypes or specifiers that fit with the presentation for the client. So it might be PTSD with dissociative symptoms. Uh, from there, you'll have uh, a list of the main diagnostic code as well as any um, indicators for subtype or specifiers. The ICD-9 or DSM-4 code is often listed in bold, and then you'll have the ICD-10 and the DSM-5 code listed in parentheses. This is how it's written out. This is how it's noted in, um, in the literature. And so 
you'll know that that's PTSD from the DSM-4, uh, and then you'll note the DSM-5 ICD-10 code in parentheses, F43.10. If you get stuck, you can look on pages 839 to 862 for the list of those diagnoses as well as the codes um, to see if there's any relevant specifier that you need to note. Broad overview of the breakdown of the coding in the DSM-5. We'll talk specifically about substance use. Um, let me know if you have any questions at this point related to recording a diagnosis or how to, to discern um, those multiple digit codes. Some changes in diagnosis and diagnostic criteria have been noted. Um, these are organized by chapter within the DSM-5. Um, the following slides do contain the changes from the DSM-4 of the names of the chapters, the diagnostic categories, and the specific diagnoses found in the DSM-5. This is not, however, a complete list of diagnoses or diagnostic criteria. Um, only those that are changes from the DSM-4-TR and those that are commonly found or used in substance use treatment settings. So again, we're not going through this entirely comprehensively. I, I want to um, focus our attention on what's going to be relevant from a substance use disorder treatment standpoint. The primary ICD-10-CM codes are listed where, where uh, possible with each of the disorders, and then the codes are dependent on the subtypes and the specifiers. But again, you'll see that those subtypes, those specifiers are pretty uniform across different substances. So as long as you know the change in the broad category of the substance, um, the specifiers that follow are largely uniform. Of the 22 chapters from the DSM-4, there is one chapter that kept the same name exactly, and that was personality disorders. Uh, there are a number of other chapters with significant changes. Uh, and those are listed here. So neurodevelopmental disorders has changed, uh, bipolar and, and related disorders, depressive disorders, anxiety. Uh, you have trauma and stressor related disorders. We're gonna focus mainly on substance related and addictive disorders. As I said, we'll look at some of these other categories that are somewhat related to substance use treatment or that tend to come up. Um, but for the most part, we're going to look at substance-related and addictive diagnoses going forward. The newly added disorders, uh, social pragmatic communication disorder. Uh, this is going to be an individual who has some persistent ongoing difficulty in uh, the social use of communication. So that'll be verbal and nonverbal cues, uh, deficits in, in uh, um, adjusting language. That was a good time to get, to get stuck. Difficulties in adjusting language according to the specific needs of, of a social interaction or a listener or a situation, um, thinking about the way in which language changes based on environment or circumstance. Uh, DMDD is, is a really popular, pervasive diagnosis. It is, uh, I remember when the DSM-5 came out, it was, there was a concern that DMDD might be uh, kind of a, a catch-all diagnosis for especially for younger individuals. Um, this does apply to children up to the age of 18 who are exhibiting irritability and, and episodes of mood dysregulation 
that are causing functional impairment. Uh, this was originally designed to address kind of the over assessment, over diagnosis of bipolar disorder among children, uh, because bipolar disorder wasn't really initially conceptualized to encapsulate the developmental mood dysregulation that younger individuals may experience. Uh, again, the, the flip side of this was there's a criticism that this might then turn into a catch-all, but I, I think having that distinction between what's typically a more uh, adult or older individual-oriented diagnosis with one that's more developmentally appropriate is a good change. Uh, persistent depressive disorder, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, hoarding disorder, uh, excoriation, which is skin picking disorder, and then binge eating disorder. Uh, binge eating disorder, which was distinguished from uh, some of the other uh, eating disorders, uh, anorexia nervosa or uh, bulimia, um, or binging and purging type. There have been some other changes, specifically with the substance use disorder codes. Uh, all right, we're going to focus. We're going to shift our focus now to substance use disorders. There have been a, a, a lot of significant changes related to SUD codes that, again, I think are important for our diagnostic purposes, but they're also really relevant from how we engage people in treatment. And so I, I want to go through these codes, but I also want to talk a little bit about the rationale in the change. <clears throat> Uh, the biggest one that you, you probably would have noticed is that substance-related and addictive disorders has replaced substance-related disorders. So it's been broadened a little bit more specific, a little bit more to encapsulate not just substance-specific issues. Uh, and we'll talk about what change that encompasses in just a second. This has been the biggest reconceptualization, I think, related to substance use issues. Um, you often hear the term abuse and dependence used regularly in treatment. Um, you have to look no further than the UCLA Integrated Substance Abuse Programs to note that this terminology is still in rotation. Uh, instead, we want to shift our language to substance use disorder. I think this is a really important shift, it, not just because abuse and dependence is no longer clinically relevant, but there's a degree of stigma that comes along with those terms. And so I think about this in, in combination. It's the stigma associated with the terms, as well as the lack of clinical relevance. We really should be moving away from referring to uh, these uh, impacts and functioning as substance abuse, uh, alcohol abuse, cocaine abuse, marijuana abuse. Um, I, I wanna make sure that we, we highlight the lack of clinical relevance, that it, that's no longer relevant, but also calling someone an abuser has a significant connotation that's associated with it. Saying that somebody is dependent on a, on a, a particular substance often goes beyond how we would conceptualize that within treatment beyond the kind of physiological dependence that they may be experiencing or potentially even the psychological dependence. There's a broader social, uh, I think, connotation with that term that, that further stigmatizes the kind of work that you all are doing. So I want us to try to move away from that terminology. There's actually been studies as well that show um, if we were to take this training 
and split you into two groups and give each group the same exact vignette with the only difference being referring to someone as a substance abuser or an individual with a substance use disorder. Research has actually shown that that slight shift in language actually has relevance to treatment outcomes. That when an individual is described as a substance abuser or an individual with a substance abuse problem, they are seen as more likely uh, to be resistant to treatment, more likely to need punishment in order for treatment to work effectively, uh, more likely to be to blame for their substance use issues, none of which is conducive to engagement and rapport in treatment. So it's a subtle shift. It seems kind of innocuous and potentially unimportant, but it, it really does have bearings on how people are seen in treatment and, and potentially even how their, their course of treatment is going to proceed. Uh, so I would encourage you, if, if you're somebody who uses that term, I am guilty of this, we still incorporate it in our, our trainings at times, um, call us out certainly if you see it in our trainings, but try to shift your language to um, describing it as a substance use disorder. Again, identifying it in this way also encapsulates functioning along a continuum. Abuse and dependence sound like really discrete components of functioning, and it also doesn't give me a really robust picture of, of where this person is in terms of that continuum of substance use disorders. Uh, so now we have it identified as a substance use disorder and we're identifying impairment and functioning along this continuum. Is it mild, is it moderate, or is it severe? So you have that specifier in terms of, of uh, level of impairment and functioning, and then the 11 criteria uh, that are largely the same from uh, abuse and dependence conceptualizations from the DSM-4. The two main changes are that you removed substance-related legal problems as a criterion, because legal problems in and of themselves are not a great predictor of somebody having a substance use issue. Legal problems often follow, certainly, for certain individuals uh, as a result of substance use issues, but legal problems in and of themselves have not been identified as a, an accurate indicator or predictor of substance use disorder. So that's been removed. Certainly something that you can still assess for, uh, but it's not a criterion for the diagnosis. And then craving has been added uh, because we recognize that, that this development of tolerance and withdrawal, uh, it has an accompanying physiological craving component, or there might be some psychological need to continue to use. So if we look at the diagnostic criteria, the 11 items for substance use disorder, the first one is that the substance is often taken in larger amounts or over a longer period of time than was intended. Uh, so there's some lack of control that you're starting to see there that the person uh, did not intend to use in the way that they are using currently or have been using. Uh, you further see this in the individual has either a persistent desire or has actually been unsuccessful in efforts to cut down or control their use. Sometimes this one isn't as obvious when somebody first comes to treatment. They'll say, oh, I don't really have a problem. Uh, I don't need to cut down. Uh, and so you may not hear this particular criterion early on in treatment. It may take a little bit more assessment, a little bit more rapport before the person starts to identify or disclose. Uh, really specific attempts to cut down or control use. Third one is that the, the person spends an inordinate amount of time in associate, 
activities associated with use uh, in a way that, again, leads to functional impairments. Either they were spending time in obtaining the substance or recovering from the effects of it. So you're talking a little bit about withdrawal uh, symptoms as a result of use. Craving or a strong desire to use. Uh, recurrent use results in functional impairments in either work, school, or home. The individual continues to use despite ongoing negative consequences. Uh, so persistent or recurrent problems that are caused by or exacerbated by the effects of whatever substance they're using. And then uh, important social, occupational, and recreational activities are given up. That is one of the hallmarks of substance use that you tend to hear about in treatment. The person no longer is interested in doing what they previously did. Everything they're doing is wrapped up in obtaining, using, recovering from, and then obtaining again uh, the substance that they're uh, of choice that they have. The eighth one, again, recurrent use in situations in which it is physically hazardous, which is pretty broad. You, you can uh, interpret that in a number of different ways, but you're looking at situations in which the individual is uh, potentially at risk. And then nine is continued use despite knowledge of having some sort of problem that's associated with ongoing use. So acknowledging the problem, recognizing that there's a problem, but the problem itself is not sufficient to discontinue use. Uh, 10 and 11 should really be on the same slide because they go together tolerance and withdrawal. R remember here that we're looking at uh, the physiological components of tolerance and withdrawal, um, the need for a markedly increased amount of the substance in order to achieve the intoxication or desired effect. That is an indicator that the individual's use has progressed for a period of time. Tolerance tends to build at different rates for different substances, but if somebody is building tolerance, it indicates that not only are they continuing to use, um, but their body has attenuated to whatever dose they initially started with. You might also be looking at a markedly diminished effect with continued use of the same amount of the substance. Um, and then withdrawal is any indicator of those withdrawal symptoms that are associated with the substance uh, that occur upon cessation of use. Uh, typically, this is related to heavy or prolonged use, but not necessarily. You can be diagnosed with certain withdrawal symptoms following a singular episode of substance use. Less likely in treatment, we're usually seeing individuals with more chronic patterns of use, but that is a possible diagnosis. Each of these classes of substances uh, have their own withdrawal characteristics, which we'll talk about in just a little bit, and the, the intoxication effects are also noted. Uh, withdrawal will often manifest as a return to use of the substance to relieve or avoid those symptoms. And so what you want to track is not just the, the presence of the symptoms, but is the person using to avoid or kind of stave off uh, the withdrawal symptoms. If it helps you to conceptualize this, the criteria are also broken down into broad categories of, of uh, impairments. And I think this is particularly relevant if you're thinking about treatment planning, looking at criteria one through four is impulse control issues. So I might design interventions, I might design a treatment plan that's focused. If these are the clusters of, uh, of symptoms that I'm getting, 
you're looking at uh, designing something around impulse control. If it's criteria five to seven, you're looking at issues related to social impairment. Uh, and then criteria eight to nine assesses the level of risk associated with the individual's use. So how risky is their use versus ongoing social impairment and impulse control issues. Good. Um, the severity rating is dependent upon the number of uh, criteria that are met in your diagnosis. And so two to three is mild, four to five is moderate, and then six or more is severe. Okay. Questions about the diagnosis first and foremost. There is a criticism. So uh, the uh, again, of the DSM-5 diagnosis, this idea that you're looking at a period of time in which, getting to Maxine's point, in which this may not be the most relevant indicator of functional impairment in the person's life at that point, uh, if that makes sense. And, and so when you're assigning a diagnosis, yes, you want to encapsulate a, a period of time, 12 months, in which the individual may have been experiencing these issues. Uh, but anytime you're developing a treatment plan, again, you want to look at what is the current impairment in functioning, what are the current issues that the individual is experiencing. There are uh, a couple sections of substance-related addictive disorders that are not included in the DSM-5. Remember that these are those components that you may notice in treatment, that you may hear about this. Uh, people will describe this as they are talking to you about what's going on in their life, um, but you don't have necessarily a diagnostic classification for this in the DSM-5, first of which is uh, internet addictions. So that's the use of the internet uh, rather than video game addiction, which is slightly separate. So you're separating the use of the internet, the connectedness of, of being addicted to things like social media versus video game. And so video game could include online use of or online engagement uh, for video gaming, but it's separated out from internet addictions. Uh, compulsive shopping and food addiction are separated out uh, as, as not being considered uh, under substance-related addictive disorders at this point in time. Um, it doesn't mean that they won't be included in the future. It simply means that there's more research that needs to be done in order to understand whether or not this fits the same kind of conceptual criteria as other substance-related and addictive disorders. Uh, so food addiction is distinguished from binge eating. Um, again, internet addiction and video game addiction is distinguished from other behaviors like gambling. Uh, if the internet addiction or the video game addiction is based on betting and wagering, that would be classified under gambling. So it's distinct from that. <clears throat> Again, if you're encountering this in treatment, however, you, you treat what's in the room. If somebody indicates that they feel like they're playing too many video games and that's causing some functional impairments in their life, uh, or it's increasing feelings of depression or other mood symptoms, you would incorporate that. It wouldn't be identified as a specific diagnosis, but I would certainly incorporate that as a conceptualization for my treatment planning. Again, this improvement in 
differentiating compulsive behavior, which is addiction, versus normal responses to drug-taking behavior is important. We'll talk about what that means in terms of dependence. Uh, Substance-induced mental disorders has been moved to the respective primary disorders chapter, so it's no longer included under substance-related or addictive disorders. Substance-induced anxiety disorder is going to be placed in the anxiety disorders chapter. And you'll remember that when you talk about dependence, really what you're talking about is a physiological process of building tolerance to a particular substance. That's not a good indicator of functional impairment in and of itself. You can have somebody who develops a tolerance to a particular substance without the associated functional impairment. And so they would technically be classified as chemically dependent, but it doesn't have the same connotation as a DSM-IV diagnosis of substance dependence. So that's one of the reasons that that was removed um, as an identifier for uh, this particular classification of diagnoses. What has been added, uh, cannabis withdrawal has been added. Uh, you'll hear from clients, well, you know, you can't get addicted to, to weed. That's not something that happens. There's no effects of, of uh, cannabis use. Not true. Uh, again, we've talked about this in other trainings. Cannabis has changed substantially in the past couple decades. Uh, what was a 1% to 2% active um, THC content, which is the main active um, chemical uh, that produces some of the, the um, psychogenic effects of <clears throat> cannabis. One to two percent two decades ago is now 18 to 20 percent. So significantly higher. Anytime you have an increase in potency like that, uh, the brain, the body are going to respond in a particular way. And then when that's removed, you're more likely to see withdrawal symptoms. Uh, one of the things that's coming up a lot more frequently, it seems, since cannabis has been legalized is um, cannabis-induced hyperemesis syndrome in which individuals uh, will start to vomit and be unable to stop vomiting um, as a component of withdrawal or potentially even cannabis intoxication. Caffeine withdrawal has been added. Congratulations to every single one of you. I don't know if that many people are using caffeine, but uh, this is incredibly common and it has been added to uh, the DSM-5 uh, as it noted that it does cause particular specific symptoms. Um, what is not in the DSM-5 is caffeine use disorder uh, because you are unlikely to experience significant clinical impairment in functioning as a result of ongoing caffeine use. Now, that brings up some considerations for things like energy drinks. Uh, at this point in time, there, is, there isn't sufficient research to classify it in that way, but it may be worth having a conversation with clients uh, whether it's caffeine because of energy drinks or the the 18 cups of coffee that they have to have during the day, it might be worth incorporating that into a discussion, but oftentimes that's significantly lower on the priority list uh, than other items that, that we have to talk about in treatment. Tobacco use disorder has been, Maxine, a cup a day, good for you. Uh, congratulations to your self-restraint, unless it's like that jug that you could get at 7-Eleven back in the day that you had to like strap on a backpack to carry. Uh, again, cup of days. It goes back to, if I'm going to tie it to the training, it goes back to assessing for standardized units of what somebody's drinking. Uh, they may say one cup, but it might be a pretty large cup, uh, whether we're talking about coffee or wine or alcohol, uh, make sure that you're assessing for standardized units. Um, tobacco use disorder has been added as a, a 
diagnosis, even though we've known about the impacts of tobacco for the better part of half a century. Um, the tobacco lobby has been extremely successful for an extended period of time at keeping this out of diagnostic considerations, but uh, luckily it's been included as of the most recent iteration of the DSM. Polysubstance dependence has been removed, which uh, while this might be a headache in terms of the additional paperwork that you have to do to identify every substance somebody is using, I actually think this is a great step from an assessment standpoint. So if somebody's using marijuana, if they're using uh, alcohol, if they're using heroin and they're using meth at different points in time, you can't just lump it all together. Instead, what you need to identify is the impact of each of those substances on the person's functioning as best as you're able to. Like I said, it might induce a little bit of a headache for the additional work that, that it encompasses, but I actually think that's a really great change because it's rare that somebody is going to be using all of those substances in exactly the same way and experiencing the impact in exactly the same way from all of those. Uh, so it helps me to engage in better assessment and to distinguish differences in, in impairment and functioning between those substances. We'll talk about gambling disorder in just a little bit, but that has been moved from impulse control disorders to substance-related and addictive disorders. Part of that change, it's not technically a substance, but it does induce similar impairments as some of the other substances we're talking about. If anybody works with uh, sex addicts, right? Individuals who are experiencing issues or difficulty with uh, sex addiction. Is that a diagnosable disorder? Not at this point in time, but hypersexual disorders have been noted and included in section three for additional research. This is another area that is incredibly contentious where some research says, yes, this is a legitimate addictive disorder. Um, some other research says, some of the criticism of that is that it's not a true addictive disorder, and it's more following from other types of other mental health conditions. And don't get too wrapped up in the, the back and forth of the criticisms, unless that's something that you're interested in. Again, treat what's in the room in front of you. Uh, treat what is present, and if that's some of the difficulty that somebody's having, you're not going to classify it as a specific code. Um, but it is noted in the DSM under uh, Section 3 for further research. But we're going to pick up and we're going to talk about gambling-related issues just really quickly. Uh, there is a chapter on gambling disorder, uh, and this is the sole condition in the new category of behavioral addictions. I imagine that this category will probably be expanded upon as we gather additional research about other types of, of behaviors such as gaming or internet. Um, but currently the DSM-4TR listed pathological gambling as an impulse control issue, not elsewhere classified. And so that's been shifted because of our understanding of gambling disorder, that we have additional research that indicates um, from imaging, uh, neuroimaging, that somebody who is experiencing issues with gambling will have the same kind of, of limbic activation patterns, that reward pathway pattern, as somebody who has a cocaine use disorder. Uh, and so there's additional indicators beyond the behavioral pieces of a similarity between gambling disorder and other types of substance-related and addictive disorders. Uh, when you're recording these different 
substance use disorders, you want to use the code for the class of substance, but then you'll record the name of the specific substance. For example, uh, F15.10 for mild methamphetamine use disorder, rather than the broad category of stimulant use disorder. You want to know the specific type of substance that the individual is using. Uh, the, we talked about the different levels of severity depending on the number of criteria that are met. And then within the purposes of diagnostic coding, the distinction is really between mild and moderate or severe. Uh, so we're kind of essentially treating moderate and severe within the same category. That's going to get the specifier of 0 0.20, and then mild is going to be 0 0.1. Uh, unlike the DSM-4 and the ICD-9, the Substance-related disorder codes combine substance use disorder and substance-induced behavioral components into a single combined code. Again, this better corresponds with our understanding of substance use issues along a continuum uh, and not necessarily as discrete as abuse or dependence. Because of this, the code for the actual substance use disorder is only used in the absence of a substance-induced disorder, such as intoxication, withdrawal, uh, substance-induced mood anxiety, or psychotic disorders, each of which has its own code that includes the substance use disorder. Like we talked about before, uh, there's a different consideration when there is a, a kind of a secondary impact of an existing mental health or substance use related issue in the DSM-5. So the example here is if the patient or client is not intoxicated or in withdrawal at the time of the office visit, but there appears to be no other substance-induced condition, you would use the F code uh, that's noted on the following slides for substance use disorder. Uh, you're going to note any perceptual disturbances. This is a particular specifier. Is there any occurrence of hallucinations? Uh, and you'll remember that hallucinations are any false sensory perceptions experienced without the actual external stimuli versus illusions. And illusions are, are distinguished from uh, delusions in the DSM. Illusions are misperception of actual external stimuli. So potentially a misinterpretation of uh, some sort of auditory cue that uh, maybe a, a, I think the example that they give in the DSM is you hear leaves rustling and you think that it's uh, somebody calling your name would be an example of an illusion versus something like a, a delusion. Uh, and all of these occur in the absence of a delirium. Here's our, our note about specifiers, early remission versus sustained. You want to look at the time frame uh, of at least three months, but less than 12 months, and then sustained remission is going to be 12 months or longer. There's also the opportunity to qualify this based on environment. And so if an individual is experiencing remission of any type in something like prison or jail or a therapeutic community or an inpatient treatment center, um, that is worth noting because there may be a generalization of some of these symptoms once the, once the individual is outside of that environment. We're going to go through different types of, of substances now, and we'll just look at the codes really quickly. I don't know how much, um, how relevant it is to go over every single code for each of these, so I'm going to defer to something a little bit different, and I'm going to note 
I'll talk about the codes, but then uh, I want to talk about something that's somewhat separate from this. So alcohol use disorder is F10 and then 0.1 or 0.2, depending on the severity. Current in alcohol intoxication is uh, you're specifying the severity of um, the potential use disorder. So is there an alcohol use disorder concurrent with the alcohol intoxication, or is this a single episode of alcohol intoxication? You would note that based on 1.2, or sorry, 0 0.129, 0 0.229, or 0.929. You would then also have the opportunity to code alcohol withdrawal uh, with or without perceptual disturbances. And note that while perceptual disturbances are rare, they are not unheard of related to alcohol with Draw. Uh, again, the code there is F10.23, and then the, the last digit specifies those perceptual disturbances. All right, feedback on this one. So you're meeting with a new client to complete the assessment. Upon arriving at the clinic, the client appears nervous and energetic. The client's face is flushed. He has difficulty sitting still in your office. He rapidly and excitedly responds to your questions, jumping from one subject to another that are often unrelated to the under, uh, original question. You notice he is rapidly shaking his leg and has a slight twitch in his index finger. He mentions that he hasn't felt the need for sleep and declares, my heart is beating so fast. Uh, <laughs> what are your considerations for differential diagnosis and what else would you want to ask this client? So we'll do this just as a large group discussion. We can start with uh, your considerations, but what else would you, what else would you consider? What do you want to ask this individual? Meeting with a new client, some of the symptoms that he's exhibiting. Differential diagnoses that you would consider. I don't need to know the codes, just generally speaking, what are some of the things that you would consider based on what you know? And then what other questions would you want to ask? Good, so we would want to ask if he has a history of alcohol or drug use, good. Thinking mania would ask how long it's been since he hasn't felt the need for sleep. Good. Uh, how long have you been feeling this way? Good. We don't really have time frame, right? Which kind of complicates this particular scenario. Um, good sense for those of you that are, are wanting to ask about uh, or to, to try to narrow this down, uh, substance issues, potentially anxiety, uh, assess for substance use stimulant. Is he taking any medications? Could it be potentially mania? Good. How long has this been going on is one critical question, I think, to ask. Excellent. What did he eat or drink before coming to session? Good. Any new medications? Yep. So any changes in medications and any history of medical conditions? Broad questions, right? So those are pretty broad questions, but they, they're, they're very pointed, right? And it's, it's not necessarily that you're going to get the response that you want, but you're asking questions that are going to help you rule out one thing or another. Okay, good. History of use, how long the presenting symptoms, amount of use, health issues, and other treatment. Good. Uh, we talked about this, we've talked about this in other sessions, but anytime I'm trying to assess, if I get time to bring it up, anytime I'm trying to assess uh, for substance use issues, I want to know the substance the person is using, how long they've been using it, uh, how frequently they use it, how much they use, and route of administration. Um, that gives me a sense of kind of present 
issues, things like tolerance, things like withdrawal that I could be cognizant of. Uh, it doesn't necessarily totally give me what I would need to meet the criteria for a substance use disorder and, and the sustained or early remission. Um, but that's, it's a good way of, of kind of determining the, the relevant factors of current use. Good, you might wanna do a risk assessment. Yeah, it might be worth just kind of, I, I don't know that there's any sort of overt risk, but maybe get a sense of timeline to, to know uh, how long it's been since this person has slept. Uh, maybe note what that they're they seem kind of energetic and what they're doing with that energy. Uh, maybe note if they they have noticed any changes in their functioning. Uh, it's good. I was going to say yeah, see if they have any underlying heart conditions because that might be something that you would want to follow up with a primary care physician about. Good. Anything else? This is these are all good responses. I, I don't know that there's too much more that we can do with this case at this point, uh, because there isn't a ton of information, and, and I don't think anybody would probably make a snap judgment based on, uh, what is this, like three lines of information about somebody's presentation without diving into it more. But I think uh, your sense of where you would go with this and where you could potentially start is right on assessing for substance use, specifically a stimulant. I mean, this looks very uh, typically classified as a, a stimulant reaction. Um, what it is that the individual ate or drank before coming into session. If this was all I had, um, interestingly enough, I, I like this example because the symptoms in this are exactly caffeine intoxication. Uh, nothing else. Noted, if we don't have any other information, the most boxes that it checks off are caffeine intoxication. A good sense of asking the person what they ate or drank. Maybe this person just had uh, a, a was it Maxine-sized cup of coffee before they came in, and, and this is what they're experiencing, caffeine intoxication. It's worth knowing that this is a potential diagnosis. I don't know how many people are actually going to be diagnosing caffeine intoxication. It doesn't come up in treatment all that frequently because oftentimes you're not getting clinically significant impairment in functioning as a result of something like caffeine intoxication. Uh, this is listed in the DSM. You have not only the substance use disorder criteria, but you actually have indicators of intoxication and withdrawal. So if you're ever uncertain about what symptoms look like related to a particular substance uh, for intoxication and or withdrawal. These are listed pretty clearly in the DSM. Um, fencyclidine is not noted as having withdrawal symptoms because symptoms are not currently sufficiently documented. Uh, hallucinogens also don't carry a, a diagnosed withdrawal indicator because there isn't sufficient documentation of hallucinogen withdrawal. Uh, there is an indicator of persistent hallucinogen symptoms, things like flashbacks, re-experiencing, but that's a little bit different. Uh, similarly with inhalants, inhalant symptoms are typically mild in terms of withdrawal, though you do hear people report things like significant headache, uh, which may be worth focusing on. It won't necessarily be a diagnosis, however. So this, the use of this kind of breakdown is twofold. I think it, it is useful to consider uh, that you can diagnose this 
should it be relevant if somebody is showing up intoxicated you could potentially diagnose intoxication versus withdrawal but i also like that it gives me a sense of um, symptoms that i should be looking out for uh, symptoms that i could potentially educate someone around this form if you can see it i i did not include this in your packet I apologize for this. This is in the DSM-5. I see a lot of people report insomnia. Then you find out they were treating monster drinks. All right, so you're you're treating insomnia. You're thinking, is this a component of something like depression? Is there something else going on? Is there a medical concern? And they're like, no, I just had uh, a Red Bull at 3 p.m. And you're like, well, that probably would contribute to it. Uh, that's, again, it's a good way to differentially diagnose, even if you're not going to be uh, codifying something like caffeine withdrawal or caffeine intoxication, uh, being aware of some of those symptoms and what the impacts uh, of them are, uh, I think is is a good way to uh, add to your assessment practices. Good point. Yeah, yeah particularly younger individuals. This is going to make me sound like super curmudgeonly and old, but I don't remember a lot of people drinking coffee when I was like in high school and, and middle school, but it seems like everybody has caffeine in one way or another now. It's like the number of, of younger clients like coming in with like Starbucks and that sort of thing, it's, it's uh, surprising to me um, that uh, that many people are using caffeine. But again, caffeine in terms of that list that we just showed is uh, significantly less problematic than other substances. Uh, when we talk about opioids, so we're going to go through the classification of these other substances. Again, you'll have that list available to you to look at intoxication and withdrawal patterns. But just broadly speaking, a quick overview of these other substance categories. Um, opioids is one of the, the categories of substances that you would focus on. These refer to a category of natural synthetic and semi-synthetic drugs that affect opioid receptors in your brain and throughout your body. They produce that relaxed effect, that euphoric kind of uh, pain relieving effect. Um, endogenous opioids. Interesting, I had no idea that this was the case up until I started doing a little bit more substance use work. Um, endogenous opioids comes from a, this term endorphins comes from a combination of endogenous morphines, which was how endogenous opioids were originally identified. So if you get that, like people talk about like runner's high, where you're trying to produce endorphins that help you feel pleasure. Uh, originally those were called endogenous morphines and that was mushed together to produce the term endorphins. Uh, essentially what you're producing there is that endogenous opioid that you can produce by engaging in certain activities um, naturally. <clears throat> Opiates and opioids are that classification of substances that are either derived directly from an opium poppy or semi-synthetic or fully synthetic. Things like heroin, oxycodone are semi-synthetic. Your full synthetics are things like methadone uh, and fentanyl, fentanyl, which is particularly problematic on an order of magnitude, um, 500 to 1,000 times more potent than morphine, uh, than heroin, sorry. Uh, tolerance and withdrawal can develop fairly quickly with all of these opioids. Uh, and so what you would be focused on with opioid use disorders is identifying the appropriate treatment code based on the number of criteria that are met. Um, you want to specify if the individual is on any maintenance therapy. That would be a medication such as methadone, buprenorphine, or uh, own. 
look at current opioid withdrawal, F11.23, this code implies the presence of moderate or severe opioid use disorder. So you wouldn't necessarily have a separate diagnostic code uh, that would be used for the accompanying substance use disorder. Interestingly enough, that's, that's kind of wrapped up that if somebody is going through opioid withdrawal, they would have likely uh, met the criteria for uh, moderate or severe opioid use disorder. <clears throat> the codes for opioid intoxication, it can come with perceptual disturbances. Uh, it can also exist without perceptual disturbances. And so this is going, you're going to specify whether there is any sort of perceptual disturbance, uh, the hallucinations versus the illusions uh, as we talked about them previously. You can be diagnosed with cannabis use disorder, even though people will say, well, you can't get addicted to it, you can't withdraw from it. There is the possibility of diagnosing somebody with current cannabis withdrawal. Uh, again, that code in and of itself implies the presence of a moderate or severe cannabis, cannabis use disorder. So you wouldn't have to, if you're coding current cannabis withdrawal, you wouldn't have to include a separate diagnostic code <laughs> for the accompanying substance use disorder. This could be mild, moderate, or severe, similar to all the other substances. It's worth having this conversation with clients because there's a lot of misconception or misinformation about cannabis in particular. Um, with cannabis intoxication, you all know you can have perceptual disturbances. You can have it without perceptual disturbances. Some of this is based on the type of cannabis product the individual may be using. There are certain cannabis products that are more likely to induce perceptual disturbances, um, but it's also based on individual makeup, uh, individual physiology, and the, the variability of the substance or the product that the individual may be using. Sedative, hypnotic, or anxiolytic use. So this would include your, your benzos. Um, this Categorization is the same, F13, one versus two for mild or moderate and severe. Uh, looking at current intoxication, you would code that as with mild use disorder, moderate or severe use disorder, or you can have current intoxication without ongoing use issues. Withdrawal can occur with or without perceptual disturbances. And remember that when you're talking about withdrawal, for uh, anxiolytics and alcohol. That is the riskiest type of withdrawal that somebody can go through. And so you wanna make sure that you are uh, consulting with, corresponding with a physician as appropriate. Amphetamine type substance, cocaine or other unspecified stimulant use issues. Uh, synthetic amphetamine type stimulants include things like amphetamine, dextroamphetamine, uh, your prescription medications such as Ritalin or Adderall, uh, as well as methamphetamine. Now, it's it's worth noting that while these are all classified generally the same from that chemical standpoint of, of synthetic amphetamines, um, there is very much a big difference between something like Adderall and methamphetamine. So chemically, broadly, they're the same. They're classified as amphetamine-type stimulants, um, but the effect is going to be significantly more pronounced for something like methamphetamine than it would be for Ritalin or Adderall. There is also the consideration for plant-based stimulants. I think cocaine is probably the most 
well-known or commonly used uh, of the plant-based stimulants. Uh, CAT is also, you hear about this every once in a while, it's a plant-based stimulant that is typically used um, in East Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, the leaves are usually chewed like coca leaves or brewed into a tea. And, and so again, it gives a little bit of that stimulant boost similar to coffee in the afternoon. You'll you hear about people drinking the cat tea at, at um, cafes, that sort of thing in order to get that little mid-afternoon boost. Um, but those are examples of those plant-based stimulants. <clears throat> stimulant use disorder can develop uh, with as little use as one week. So it can happen very, very quickly in both tolerance and withdrawal also develop fairly quickly. Uh, withdrawal, particularly with, from methamphetamine, creates a complication for differential diagnosis. And what you may observe are depressive symptoms, uh, additional irritability, potentially uh, some aggression, but more likely irritability, some transient symptoms such as hallucinations. These can take a long period of time to resolve. They're also often a trigger for relapse. There is no set time for these types of, of co-occurring withdrawal symptoms <clears throat> that look like other mental health conditions, there's no time frame in which those will distinctly resolve. Uh, it is highly individually based, and, and so you may not know exactly whether this is an organic mental health condition or if it's induced because of withdrawal from the substance. And your job would then be to keep track of it, keep an eye on it, do your best to assess with the individual whether they have these symptoms prior to use to try to put that picture together. But again, you may never know uh, definitively whether it was withdrawal or other, other uh, developed otherwise developed. Uh, you can note mild severity, moderate to severe impairment. Again, amphetamine type or unspecified versus cocaine. It's F15 versus F14. Um, <clears throat> I think that first one there, mild severity, should be F14.10 for mild severity. Uh, current amphetamine type withdrawal is F15.23. And then cocaine withdrawal is F14.23, again, implying the presence of moderate or severe stimulant use disorder, not requiring a separate code. With amphetamine type or unspecified stimulant, you can use the code that indicates the presence of a mild versus moderate or severe use disorder, or you can have um, intoxication without perceptual disturbances with no use disorder. Same thing with cocaine. Uh, it can be in the presence of an ongoing use disorder or it can be separate from that. Uh, I don't know how frequently, again, if you're working in uh, in FSP, if you're working in an outpatient type setting, I don't know how often you're diagnosing uh, present intoxication. I think it's probably not unheard of, uh, but more likely you're you're focusing on kind of ongoing patterns of use. Keep in mind that it is possible to diagnose intoxication with the, the qualifier, the modifier, uh, the assumption that there is the ongoing use issue embedded in that diagnosis. You can read through these codes on your own. Um, I'm not going to go through every single code for stimulant intoxication with perceptual disturbances. And as I said, the F and then the first two digits are really what changes the most. Um, the 1020 to indicate severity of functioning, 
and then one two 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 nine two two seems to be similar uh, in terms of intoxication with perceptual disturbances. Other hallucinogens include uh, ketamine, and so phencyclidine we talked about, and other hallucinations, hallucinogens such as ketamine. Uh, you're classifying PCP or other hallucinogen use disorder as uh, an F16, and then the 0.1 versus 0.20 for mild or uh, more severe impairment in functioning. No withdrawal syndrome has been established for hallucinogens. Again, it, it is possible that somebody could be experiencing difficulty with withdrawal from hallucinogens, uh, but there hasn't been any sort of research validated established set of withdrawal symptoms uh, that result from hallucinogens. It is important to be cognizant of persistent experiences as we talked about, um, but that is considered differently than withdrawal. You can code current PCP or other hallucinogen intoxication. Uh, tobacco use disorder can also be coded, and this is one that we tend not to think about unless you're working specifically in a, a smoking cessation program. Uh, you're unlikely to code tobacco use disorder. Uh, it may be worth thinking about this if there's tobacco-induced sleep disorder, if you're talking to a physician and, and ruling that out. Uh, tobacco withdrawal can also be fairly pronounced. Um, tobacco intoxication is not coded because it doesn't have a, a cluster of symptoms. Usually what tends to happen is tobacco intoxication does not occur, and it doesn't occur in a way that is functionally impacting the person's um, daily life. Instead, if somebody is consuming enough tobacco to become intoxicated, uh, they're likely going to get sick more so than anything else. Again, that doesn't mean that there isn't some uh, chemical effect of using tobacco, that somebody doesn't derive some impact from that, uh, that is reinforced neurochemically, uh, but you're not likely to see kind of the intoxicating effects in the same way that you would with something like alcohol. Uh, the severity is assessed for tobacco use disorder like any other substance use disorder. There are specifiers for discontinuation if the person is in withdrawal or in remission. Um, however, tobacco use disorder is not a, a principal diagnosis. It's often listed as a secondary condition or in combination with another substance. Um, this is largely due to, again, the understanding of intoxication versus withdrawal processes. You also think about the risk associated with tobacco use. Um, while there is a health risk, it doesn't present often the same type of immediate risk that something like ongoing methamphetamine use disorder would. <clears throat> uh, and then there's a Z code that you can include in your diagnostic formulation if the person is discontinuing smoking. We talked about inhalants. Inhalants don't produce a withdrawal uh, effect in the same way that we look at other substances. It doesn't mean that people won't experience something when they're coming down from inhalants. You often hear about irritability, you hear about potentially changes in mood, uh, headaches are most common. Remember with inhalants that you, you tend to see this among younger individuals, uh, and so because it's more accessible, it's more readily available, uh, and so you'll want to record the specific substance if you know what it is. However, most inhaled compounds are a combination of different substances, uh, and you can't really identify the one single, single psychoactive ingredient. Um, inhalation of 
nitrous oxide or amyl butyl or isobutylene nitrate, which are considered poppers, typically a club drug or a party drug, uh, are categorized as other or unknown substance use disorders, even though it is typically talked about in the category, category of inhalants, uh, it's classified slightly differently. Showed here for inhalant is uh, F18, and then you add the specific modifier beyond that. There is a, a classification of other substances that aren't included in these other categories. Um, things like anabolic steroid use, NSAIDs, um, cortisol, anti-Parkinsonian medications, antihistamines, and then we talked about those poppers. Uh, betel nut or kava is also classified in this other category. Um, people will find ways of misusing substances as long as there are substances that could potentially be misused. And so this is not an exhaustive list, uh, but there is this catch-all other or unknown substance use category. You can code that using F19, and then the specifiers are exactly the same, mild versus moderate and severe. Uh, if there's intoxication concurrent with a particular use disorder, and then uh, withdrawal symptoms, if, it's, if there are symptoms but you don't know what the substance is or it's not classified, as another category, you can use F19.239. Gambling disorder has a slightly different consideration. With gambling disorder, F63.0, um, you see similar symptoms in the criteria as other substance-related issues, um, but it's not exactly the same. The criteria is a little bit less. It's, it's eight distinct criterion rather than the, or sorry, it's nine distinct criterion rather than the 11 for substance use issues. <clears throat> and you're looking at four or more of these within a 12-month period. Uh, the need to gamble to, with increasing amounts of money. So you hear a little bit of that of increasing use despite negative consequences. Uh, you hear the, the similar theme to that in that first one. Restless or irritable when attempting to cut down. So a little bit of that withdrawal, even though you're not having the, the same type of physiological withdrawal from a substance. Uh, repeated unsuccessful efforts to cut down. Preoccupation with gambling. Uh, gambling when distressed, losing money while gambling, and then return, uh, returning another day to get even or chasing one's losses, lying to conceal the extent of involvement with gambling, jeopardizing significant relationships or uh, processes such as education or career, and then relying on others to uh, supplement or to spot them money in order to relieve uh, financial situations. You want to distinguish this from a manic episode as well. You can look at this as episodic or persistent. Uh, it is adherent to those remission criteria as well. And then you're looking at the severity criteria as four to five, six to seven, or eight to nine. Uh, really, really quickly, I'm just gonna go over uh, to note, there was a component in your slides, you have a number of other diagnoses. Uh, it goes into a little bit more around mental health you're welcome to look through that just really quickly i'll go through um trauma and stressor related because this tends to come up with uh with your clients depending on who you're working with uh, it comes up consistent with substance use issues we talked a little bit about attachment disorders uh reactive attachment is 
in the DSM-5 distinct from reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder. Um, with reactive attachment, you're looking at a pattern of inhibited emotionally withdrawn behavior toward adults, uh, manifested by an individual rarely seeking comfort, uh, minimal social and emotional responsiveness to others, limited positive affect. I think that was a little bit in line with what Benjamin was mentioning. Uh, and you're kind of focusing on uh, some of the things that you're noticing with criterion C, uh, social neglect deprivation, that might be a component that's met as a result of the experience with the mother. And so if you're looking at, at some of that attachment, you might see something similar to reactive attachment. Uh, she's, she's 15 years old. Um, the disturbance would have had to have been present before the age of five. We don't really know that. And so uh, further assessment is needed, but you, you see that particular attachment disorder um, fits a lot of those components. Uh, I wanted to go over that really quickly because I know that we were pretty familiar with PTSD, pretty much familiar with a lot of the other mood symptoms that were brought up, but just really quickly covering that attachment piece. Um, <clears throat> as I said, you have a number of other descriptions of mood disorders. You have a breakdown of some of the neurocognitive um, disorders. You're welcome to look through those. Those are not as kind of intimately related in the same way with substance use as we wanted to go through with just the, the substance use disorders. Um, but those are included in your packet for you to review, to read through. And then it, it talks very, very briefly at the end of personality disorders. I, I do want to just wrap up by going over this other conditions that may be of uh, focus of clinical attention. Uh, as we talked about the previously used access four codes, the V codes are now mostly Z codes. And so you're, you're providing these in order to note other relevant conditions that may not necessarily be detailed as specifically in your diagnostic criteria. Um, things like a history of psychological abuse in childhood, inadequate housing, uh, target of adverse discrimination or persecution, um, acculturation difficulty. These are important aspects of an individual's functioning that adds a little bit more context. And then there's also a cultural formulation interview, um, 16 questions that are used during assessment, uh, cultural definition of the problem, cultural perceptions of the cause, context, and stressors, role of cultural identity, cultural factors that affect self-coping and past help-seeking, and then clinician-patient relationship to uh, uh, draw attention to some of those uh, cultural nuances. So with this, I, I think we have as robust a picture as we're going to get in these three hours, thinking about formulating a substance use diagnosis, and then some of the other considerations for incorporating into your diagnosis, uh, that context that's going to be so critically important as you formulate a treatment plan. Thank you all very much for being here for this training today. Uh, it's a dense topic on a Friday afternoon. I appreciate it. Hope that you have a good weekend.